From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. They're the frontline responders to the threat of COVID-19. So who helps them when they reach the breaking point? Burnout amongst healthcare workers pre-pandemic was at epidemic proportions already, and it's only worse now. It's going to be a reckoning that we all have to face. The pressure doctors, nurses, and other first responders are under, and a discussion focused on solutions. There are people who are actively engaging in behavior that will spread this virus, and I see what that end game looks like. Then what one school is doing to find students who may have gotten lost in the era of remote learning. Also, there are a lot of statewide issues on the ballot this election, and municipalities are deciding key issues too. We'll look at some of the common themes. The majority of CPR's membership base gives monthly. Thank you to our Evergreen members for making support for Colorado Public Radio an ongoing priority in your budget. Your monthly donation is CPR's most reliable source of revenue, and it's put to work each and every day directly serving communities across our great state. This has been a year filled with unexpected change. As a member, you ensure that free access to news, information, and music remains unchanged. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The number of people hospitalized because of coronavirus in Colorado is going up again, and that's putting pressure on already stressed healthcare workers. We're going to take a closer look at this today, including some solutions. Let's start with CPR health reporter John Daly and how doctors, nurses, and other first responders are coping. ICU nurse Julie Netsky can't get away from work even when she's off duty. She was at the post office recently. She asked a man who didn't have a mask to put one on. He got belligerent and flipped her off. Netsky decided she'd wait until he left to go in. She told another customer, Listen, I'm an ICU nurse. I take care of COVID patients. I've had COVID. This is, this is really a sensitive thing for me. I, I can't be in that room. And I got back into my car afterwards and I just started bawling. Netsky and her colleagues put their lives on the line every shift at work. And she says it hurts. That there are people who are actively engaging in behavior that will spread this virus. And and I see what that end game looks like. The pandemic has handed frontline providers situations they'd never dealt with before. Netsky works in the COVID-19 ward at Denver Health. She recalls a conversation with the wife of one dying patient who couldn't say goodbye to her husband in person. Netsky had to explain treatment options had been exhausted. That's one of the heartbreaking things is talking to these families who can't be there. And you are literally like the deliverer of hope if there is any. And feeling like so much weighs on that conversation that you're having with that person. Some co-workers have dropped down to part-time. She worries others might leave the field. Often there's a lot to process, like a patient she's gotten to know Rapidly going from stable to super sick, needing a ventilator, unresponsive. Losing that human part of them, like the personality, the soul of the person. Like you're just not interacting with that anymore. You're, you're treating their body. That's a hard transition to witness. All that pressure is hitting healthcare workers who are already pushed to the limit. Reports have long documented the danger of chronic mental health troubles and PTSD for health workers. 
The virus worsened it across the board, says Dr. Anuj Mehta, a pulmonologist and ICU doc with National Jewish Health. Burnout amongst healthcare workers, especially in the ICU, pre-pandemic was at epidemic proportions already, and it's only worse now. It's going to be a reckoning that we all have to face. And Metha says it hits workers all over the health system. Consider EMS teams, who probably have as close a view as anyone to the pandemic and its societal effects. Paramedic Peter Delavecchia says since it started, the work is... Multiple levels of intensity higher than, than the normal baseline. Shootings, stabbings, and overdoses are up sharply in Denver. Delavecchia says he's seeing more knockdown dragouts, requiring help from police. He recalls one recent case. His Denver health crew went to check on a man asleep in a parking lot, and he got attacked. We're like trying to tell him, like, we're just the paramedics, we're just checking on you. And then it's like throwing elbows, throwing punches. The moment stuck with Delavecchia. I think that kind of highlights the agitation and anger level that people have, where they're like just so stressed out that they're going to go out and like fight paramedics, right? People are just at the end of their ropes. With the pandemic, the best way I describe it, it's like trekking through the destruction of the middle class. To cope, he runs, hikes, and meditates. Dr. Robert Lamb is an ER doc with UC Health in Colorado Springs. He says that more medical workers should consider things like exercise and therapy to deal with stress. I think it's a cultural challenge. In the profession of medicine, it's always kind of like put your patients first, and then we tend to neglect self-care. There is this culture that says that asking for help is a sign of weakness. He wants providers to have a personal crisis plan with warning signs and solutions and colleagues they regularly check in with. So I like to think of what we've done as mental health PPE. The hospital also encourages patients who survived COVID-19 to share their stories with those who helped save them. When you walk in to, before you work your shift, some of those entrance points, they've done a really good job of posting all those wonderful pictures, all those letters, and, and trying to put that in front of the healthcare teams as they're going to start their job. I think that does matter. I think that makes a big difference. He hopes the pandemic inspires health systems to do more about mental health and realize what healthcare workers live with every day. I'm John Daly, CPR News. And John joins us now to talk further about the mental health challenges of frontline healthcare workers in the time of COVID. Hi, John. Good morning, Avery. And Maria Gonsalves Schimpf, a psychotherapist and strategist with the RISE program at Denver Health. It offers mental health support for healthcare workers and their families 24 7. Hi, Maria. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Maria, John described the situation in this story. What are you seeing? Well, certainly um, we know that mental health challenges among our staff and providers. Um, in our Denver health community really parallel what we're seeing among healthcare organizations across the country in the time of COVID. And tell me more about what it is you're seeing. Well, certainly there's enormous psychological distress as it relates to the COVID environment. Fear and anxiety compounded by worries about families and loved ones at home make it especially challenging to show up to work feeling um, resourced and as though you are prepared for the day and for the shift. Um, There are new demands and roles. People are certainly feeling deep depletion and exhaustion. 
And there's some extreme physical and emotional fatigue that is coming along with navigating the complexities of a personal and professional needs. Right. We've all been dealing with this for so long, and the healthcare workers know that more than anyone. John, what kind of data do we have about mental health stress in healthcare? Well, Avery, a lot of that research is still emerging, and it raises alarms, but one large national survey found 42% of doctors reported their burned out, and that poll came out in January before the pandemic started. Uh, Specialties listed at the top include some of the most stressful and ones that are treating a lot of COVID patients now, and that includes critical care, emergency medicine, family medicine, and internal medicine. Also, you hear talk of a silent epidemic of suicide. Uh, Studies have shown doctors are at much higher risk of suicide than the general public. And the same is true for nurses, EMS providers, police officers, firefighters, etc. And again, that research is from before the pandemic. So this is a, a serious problem. And Maria, you talk about the exhaustion and there's this idea of moral distress. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So often um, in healthcare, we're needing to move forward in the delivery of care in ways that are in direct conflict with our moral and ethical values as a result of any number of complexities within a system that are not within our control. And so, for instance, um, we might know that a loved one um, should be welcomed at the bedside of somebody who is in the ICU. Um, and very, very sick. And yet the current state of things within the context of COVID don't allow for uh, a large number of visitors in any healthcare system at this time. And so there is some deep conflict internally that many healthcare providers experience when wanting to do what is right and good and moral and knowing that there are external constraints that don't allow them. And we know that these deep feelings of distress, that they're a big problem made worse by the pandemic. Maria, how has COVID-19 really changed the landscape in terms of people being able to cope in the ways that they used to? Well, certainly um, the places we would go uh, to resource ourselves and fill ourselves prior to COVID um, often are unavailable to us now. And so that's particularly concerning when we think about um, caring for ourselves within COVID-19. We also know that sustaining joy in work is so important, and this requires us to have permission to feel and experience a full range of emotions. And that means that sometimes we need permission to feel gratitude and grief simultaneously. And um, our feelings are not irrelevant Uh, as so many of us are taught in school, but they're important and purposeful. They don't get in the way of the care that we provide, but they're actually necessary for resilience. Okay, Maria, we know that health systems have been building programs to help providers deal with these stresses and these conflicting feelings in their work. Tell me about RISE. Thank you so much for asking. Um, We know that uh, law enforcement and the military have had robust peer support programs for some time, Um, but we took two years to launch a peer support program specifically for healthcare personnel, as we know that in many ways, healthcare personnel 
are also in high exposure professions. And so we launched in January, not knowing that COVID was waiting for us. Um, we were trained by Johns Hopkins. Uh, this is a program brought to healthcare systems by the Maryland Patient Safety Center. And um, then expanded pretty robustly in March when the pandemic hit. And you're talking a lot about peer support. This program even has peer responders, right? That's exactly right. Yes, we have an incredible interdisciplinary team of peer responders from across the organization, um, most of whom volunteer their time to provide emotional support and psychological first aid to over 7,500 staff, um, in addition to students, volunteers, contractors within Denver Health. And what is psychological first aid? Psychological first aid is uh, really promoting safety, uh, helping people calm when overwhelmed, promoting a sense of self and community efficacy and connectedness, and helping to instill hope. So much like the reference to PPE that was made uh, in the segment, we're really working to help connect people to resources that may be supportive to them for the long term and coming and orienting them uh, in the moment of their distress. And John, let's get into that idea of stigma that we've mentioned before in your story. Traditionally, doctors and other frontline workers are known for trying to power through, perhaps not to seek help. How do you see this program changing that? Yeah, I think it's critical, right? Uh, we've heard this from uh, doctors, nurses, and other uh, uh, frontline providers for years that um, it, it's this is something that often isn't talked about, that the, the kind of culture has long been, uh, we want to try to power through this. That's just kind of the way that we're built. And, uh, and, and a lot of people maybe can do that for some time, but uh, it, it, it's hard to do for a long time. So... I think it's really, really critical from what I understand that these programs uh, help uh, the providers overcome that stigma and really normalize the idea of, of seeking help. And, and it seems like programs like RISE and others and other health systems uh, are really kind of set the table for uh, the providers to, to, to come for help and, and be able to talk about what they're going through. And Maria, do you worry about a wave of mental health troubles as the pandemic continues or even after it ends? Absolutely. I certainly hope that the proactive approach that we've taken to support our staff uh, allows us to be strong and resilient here within Denver Health. Um, our program has served staff over 44,000 times since March 29th. Um, and we have a, a, a sort of strong bedrock of confidentiality on which the program is built, which we know um, has allowed staff to trust us in the creation of a safe space. So we have a confidential RISE line that's available 24-7. We offer group support um, throughout the organization, and we have a drop-in center for staff. We know that those micro breaks and that importance, um, the importance of self-reflection and the opportunity to decompress um, in a nurturing space is really, really important for staff to continue to take care of our patients in our community. Well, Maria and John, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Maria Thanks Gun so much for having us, Avery. 
Maria Gonzalez Schimpf is the Rise program is with the Rise program at Denver Health. John Daly is CPR's health reporter. With many students learning remotely across the state, schools are facing a big attendance problem. Some students just aren't logging on. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine follows one Denver middle school dean who's working to track down his missing students. And take it all the way down here, uh, Sheridan. I'm with 8th grade school dean Dino Reyes and a couple other deans checking up on students teachers have flagged kids at Lake Middle School who haven't showed up online in a while. At the beginning of the year, attendance averaged 77 percent. Might as well roll up on Mr. Chavez, too, bro, since we're down the street. The guys check in with the grandfather of two sixth graders new to the school. The father's at work. They have experienced a whole lot of trauma. And uh, mom just died this year. And the dad's been trying to balance work. The dad says they're on the laptop when he leaves for work. But the school doesn't see the girls logged on. Back and forth, it's gone. Grandpa gives them permission to swing by the girls' apartment. Ray's jokes enough time to quick log on. He explains in an upbeat way that they're just checking up on them, making sure they have Wi-Fi, because teachers haven't seen them log on. And how can the school help? The older sister, 14-year-old Nevaeh, speaks up. I've been sitting with them all day. Maybe on the computers. Yeah? Okay. Well, it's cool. Like, you guys aren't in trouble. So, like, it's just we're just here to be supportive and just have your back. Nevea says the girls would do better at the school. Ray says the school is trying to make it easier to get to its remote learning center. Until then, a nudge. What's funny, and a lot of cats don't know, that the district can see every single website that y'all go in. They know when you turn it on, they know when you turn it off, and they know when you're logging in and when you're not. The 11-year-olds are quiet, but Alyssa finally says this about online learning. It's sometimes hard, and... Sometimes I don't know what to do. The guys hand them T-shirts, tell them to call if they need help, and walk silently back to the car. That's right, like, because I don't know them, you know what I mean? That's the first time I ever met them, so it's going to be hard to, like, even, like, jam them up, you know what I mean? Like, hey, man, I know y'all ain't getting on. Clearly y'all are here on Netflix right now chilling. (laughs) <laughs> the situation doesn't deter Reyes. It inspires him. He sees the effects of isolation on the students, isolation from friends and adults other than parents. Like it's our people. This is our community. This is our culture. This is our responsibility. Reyes knows the best executed lesson plans won't get all students logging on. There are other reasons some kids would show up to school. It's the culture he and staff members created inside the school starting two years ago. Back in 2018, Lake was considered the worst school in Denver on the ratings. Others were in charge of improving academics. Reyes had to shift the culture. My goal is to get buy-in. As a student, Reyes himself was kicked out of Lake Middle School. He explains many kids in poverty know they're disenfranchised, so they seek identity in gangs and sports or in music. He knew the school needed an identity to say, this is who we are, this is what we do as knights. The school mascot is a knight. The school looks like a castle. So four virtues, honor, hard work, generosity, and humility, became the new pillars on full display every day at school. Using our virtues in our daily vernacular, like, are you being honorable? Making sure that they know what that is, know what that looks like when it's exemplified. So we want them to embody those traits. Some of DPS! 
The school held weekly assemblies highlighting a virtue, and once a month, students vote on who embodies those virtues. Ray's created a barbershop called Castle Cuts. They converted a storage room into the Hall of Heroes, where kids could come and let off steam and work out. There's a DJ school and three school gardens. They built pride in the kids' neighborhoods and who they are. We're from Sun Valley. We're proud. We're from Barnum. We're from the Clare Gardens. On the academic side, they completely overhauled how the school operated. And kids were just starting to grow academically. Bullying plummeted. District ratings bumped up. This spring was going to be big. They planned big events for families. And then everything changed. The culture that kept kids in school disappeared. All right, so this is John. I think what the note was, he was just struggling to get on. Back on the road, Ray's explains all the layers of why some kids aren't logging on now. Some need a teacher in front of them to get it done. They're also used to technology being for fun. It's like having your PlayStation and having to write an essay using that. Like, it's just kind of like, what? I don't want to do that. Some kids struggle to read or have ADHD. Sixth grade dean Juan Renhel, a.k.a. Mr. Stacks, knows another barrier well. He says his mom and aunts and uncles were pulled out of school young to work and help pay the bills. When it came to me growing up, my mom didn't really stress school very much or education or the importance of it. He sees that in families, especially now, who are just trying to survive. Ooh, it's the Sun Valley. I love the Sun Valleys. Ray's grew up in the Sun Valley projects. But the 10-block housing project will soon be torn down, part of the city's plan for a new entertainment, business, and housing district. Breaks my heart. It really does. Feels like uh, colonization, man. They're all, what, are, what, are our, what are our students going to do, you know? Move, it turns out. It's noon, and we've woken up 8th grader Marcus Brodus, nicknamed Brody. He was up really late, packing boxes into a U-Haul. No logging on to school today. With all the stuff I have going on... A construction truck passes by. Brody doesn't know where the family's going. In sixth grade, he struggled a lot, had outbursts. The staff worked with him hours. He spent a lot of time in the Hall of Heroes, the weight room where kids can calm down and talk about what they're feeling. Staff say Brody's improved leaps and bounds, but Brody tells me he's still failing. And now it's just like, I don't think I'm going to make it to high school. But he wants to. He really does. Maybe he could be a cop one day, he says. It just seems like I'd get to see more the city, learn more. From Brody's front door, you can see the city's towering skyscrapers about three miles away. He's glad he went to Lake. They have a lot of caring people there. So if you go there, try to do your best. He says Ray's is one of the nicest people he knows. He cares more than most. You make me cry right now, Brody. You make me cry today. I just wanted to come and smile. Love you, bro. Ray's gently urges him to tune into school tomorrow. And if you want to come by to the school tomorrow, if you need a ride or whatever, just just tell your mom to text me, okay? All right. All right, love you, bro. Love you too. Until then, Mr. Ray's will keep checking up on his kids, putting out videos of his visits in the neighborhood. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Mr. Ray's over here at Lake Middle School. Yo, remember this. This is who we are. Remember the fun we had. Remember how passionate we are for this community. And he remembers Lake's motto that he rediscovered in an old library book from the school he once got kicked out of. Semper Dienseps. Always forward. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. Lake Middle School reports its attendance reached 94% last week. 
When we come back, a closer look at some of the municipal issues voters will decide this election, from broadband to marijuana. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Marijuana has long found its way into the hands and minds of creative people. Smoking definitely brings the emotional intensity where you don't overthink it. But what is the connection between creativity and cannabis? Most people who smoke pot get less creative. To find out, we talked to members of the band's Chicano Batman, Tank and the Bangas, a chef and a neurologist on the latest episode of On Something. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Colorado ballots this year are long. There are 11 statewide ballot measures. Then there are all the local questions. There are too many to highlight each city's on the show. But Colorado Matters producer Ali Budner joins me to talk about trends and highlights and a few of the common issues popping up on local ballots. Hi, Ali. Thanks for being here. Hi, Avery. Thanks for having me. Allie, are there some common threads in the local ballot issues around the state? Yeah, I got a bunch of info from the Colorado Municipal League. They look at all the municipal level ballot issues and they compile a list of which cities and towns are dealing with which kinds of questions. Some of the interesting ones this year include gaming, broadband and marijuana. So let's start with gaming. There are a couple of statewide ballot issues to loosen restrictions around gambling. Then several towns have their own ballot initiatives. Yeah, that's right. Amendment C and Amendment 77 are both on the statewide ballot. It's 77 that Colorado's three gambling towns have their eyes on. Currently, there's a $100 maximum wager statewide. And Amendment 77 would hand over control of gaming decisions, like about bet limits, to uh, the city in those three towns, Cripple Creek, Blackhawk, and Central City. It would allow them to eliminate any ceiling on bet amounts and just to make their own rules around uh, those amounts and around which games are legal. So each of those three towns have their own ballot questions to say if 77 passes statewide, they want to be able to start mobilizing on those new rules as early as possible. Otherwise, they would have to have a a special election or wait until um, the next uh, regular election to be able to ask for permission to do what Amendment 77 is, is granting them. That's that's Kevin Bomber. He heads up the Colorado Municipal League, and we'll be hearing a little bit more from him, some explanations throughout our discussion here. Okay, so that's gaming. What about broadband? Safe to say most folks are online now more than ever, whether that's for work, school, even doctor's visits. What kinds of questions are local cities and towns asking their voters about broadband this year? Well, as Kevin Bomber explained it to me, the local broadband issues go all the way back to 2005. He said that was when the telecom industry attempted to prohibit local governments from owning public broadband or telecommunications infrastructure. But as it ended up, there was a caveat in there, an amendment that said that voters in a given municipality could choose to release their city or town from that prohibition. Uh, More than 100 municipalities in Colorado have done that. And this year, there's several more up for vote, uh, Bertha, Denver, and Inglewood. And if their measures pass, these cities would have permission to look into the possibility of public investment in broadband infrastructure. 
It doesn't put any fiber in the ground. No one's going to automatically have high-speed service, but it allows a conversation to start. And in particular, in less populated areas, to try to pursue public-private partnerships where you know maybe some public investment in, in infrastructure will help spur uh, better and faster broadband. Bomber said these kinds of ballot questions can be sort of serve as a referendum on whether people think they have sufficient broadband access. And he said most of the time they don't. So he expects these measures will pass. Okay, so that's definitely a timely question. You mentioned marijuana was also all over the ballots this year. Yeah. So when Colorado legalized marijuana statewide back in 2012, it left a lot of the details unwritten and left it up to local municipalities. So this is just a ripple effect of cities and towns making their own decisions about whether to allow the retail of weed within their borders, and if so, how to tax it, etc. It is really one of the best examples of all politics is local, because a small town in a very conservative part of the state that you would expect to say no, sometimes says yes. And uh, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, who, who's added to the list of those that allow. But I, I would say even still, it is not a tidal wave of municipalities opting in. It's just uh, sort of a, a slow trickle. And possibly adding to that slow trickle this year are Buena Vista, Cedar Edge, Eckley, Fort Lupton, Kiowa, Lakewood, Littleton, Paonia, Romeo, Broomfield, Dinosaur, and Winter Park. Um, And voters in all of those areas will have some kind of marijuana question on their ballots, whether it's about allowing for retail, medical dispensaries, manufacturing, cultivation, or taxation. I love that he said all politics is local. That's exactly why we're talking about local ballot measures. Um, Is there anything else that you want to highlight? Yeah, in in the category of governance, Boulder and Littleton are both considering whether to have their mayors be elected by a direct vote of the people rather than by city council. Uh, So that's one to keep an eye on. And Severance Colorado is asking its voters if they want to join more than 100 other cities and towns in becoming a home rule municipality. That basically means they'd have an expanded scope of self-governance when it comes to picking election dates, making sales tax decisions, staffing uh, their courts and things like that. And then there are always tax questions, right? Right. They're not sexy, but they are sort of the workhorses of local economies. So they tend to be a perennial question on local ballots. For example, a bunch of municipalities are voting on different questions around how to use their sales taxes. In Denver, voters will decide whether to use sales taxes to help fund programs to eliminate greenhouse gas emissions and develop better climate change adaptation. Uh, Monument voters are being asked if they want sales taxes to fund expanded police services and facilities. Uh, EADS out in eastern Colorado will decide side of sales taxes will fund the construction of a public swimming pool. Um, And then there are lodging tax proposals on six different ballots. Those would affect uh, short-term rentals like Airbnb, as well as hotels and motels. And in Boulder, there's an interesting proposal to tax residential landlords to fund a rental assistance program for people vulnerable to evictions. Well, thank you so much for that breakdown, Allie. Allie Budner is a producer for Colorado Matters. You can find CPR News voting guides at CPR.org and Denbright.com.
Election Day is two weeks from today, although voters can cast their mail-in ballots now. Among the key races, who should be the next U.S. senator with national balance of power potentially at stake? It's one of the discussion points in the latest episode of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Here are public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny and Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim. In the last few weeks, Senator Cory Gardner, the Republican incumbent in the race, and former Governor John Hickenlooper, the Democratic challenger, met for four debates. One was only streamed online, another hosted by Telemundo was overdubbed into Spanish, and the other two were televised, including one we co-hosted. So what did you guys think? Um, From what you saw, did Gardner make his case enough to sway the purplish parts of this state? Well, first off, only two of the debates were really widely broadcast, and so It's not clear how many people tuned into these debates, but Mm -hmm. if they did, I didn't see anything that drastically changed the course of of the race. I think both men made pitches that we've we've seen them make. Uh, They disagreed on everything from the country's handling of the pandemic to filling the Supreme Court vacancy, uh, how to address climate change, their own records. Um, They are both running as bipartisan candidates who will go to Washington and be productive. But President Trump in control of the Senate just looms so large in this mm-hmm. race. And we, and we saw that in some of the debates, too. Yeah, it's hard to keep the bipartisan nice guy message rolling when you're such a nationally important race in such a politically divisive time. Mm-hmm. You saw John Hickenlooper trying to pin down Gardner for his longtime support of President Trump. And meanwhile, Gardner tried to reflect it right back by pinning Hickenlooper to this discussion about, oh, are they going to expand the Supreme Court? Mm -hmm. Is he going to join Democrats in changing some of the rules of governance? Right. And I think for me, the the question that was the most telling and showed sort of the corner that Gardner was backed into was the ethics and morality question. But I'm curious whether you believe that your opponent here is a moral and ethical man. Mr. Gardner, do you believe that of Mr. Hickenlooper? Well, thank you. I have grave concern with Governor Hickenlooper. It's a yes or no question, sir. Uh, I, look, I have grave concern about his contempt, <laughs> how he can stand in front of us and say there are only two We're charges. We're not going to filibuster the yes or no. Thank you. Mr. And then when they followed up with, the, do you think Trump is an ethical and moral man? And Hickenlooper says no, and Gardner says yes automatically. I think even for some Trump supporters, that's hard to to, to swallow because, you know, he, he is – he is flawed, as I, I think I think we could all agree he's a very flawed person and, and, and candidate. for plenty of supporters. Yeah. I don't like what he says or does as a person. Exactly. And I think that's, that's again, like, Gardner can't show a lot of daylight between him and Trump. And that question for me sort of summed up the corner that he got backed into or has backed himself into, however you want to put it. Yeah, I that's... think I was going to say, I think Gardner's done a good job of highlighting some of the policies he's passed and things mm-hmm. he's done in Colorado, mm-hmm. whether it's the Great Outdoors Act. But... For some voters I've talked to, it's it's not even about that. It's it's bigger than that because this is a key race that mm-hmm. determines which party controls the Senate. And how does Gardner separate himself from the president when so much of this election is about the president? That's right. He's answered this question in the past of how do you stand on Trump by saying, I support what we did together. I'm proud of the work that we have done for Colorado to bring a space command to Colorado Springs, to open up the Bureau of Land Management headquarters here. I'm proud of the work that we've done. You so, know, yes, casting himself as Colorado's representative who helped get things done with Republicans. Mm-hmm. But the question is, does that argument still stand up if Republicans aren't in power and Gardner doesn't have someone to work with. Well, but Gardner also says that he worked well with Obama when he was in, Mm -hmm. when President, Democratic President uh, Barack Obama was in power. So, you know, that's, that's been his whole entire argument about being bipartisan. He can work with either president. 
but I, I do agree with what you're saying. Like, that is the argument Gardner has to make. Like, it's not whether or not I, I like Trump or I think he's the best person mm. and always says the right thing. I know how to work with him and get stuff done for the state. And I think everyone has said that there are going to be voters who will vote against President Trump and will vote for Gardner. The question is how many people will fall into that category. And then if Trump ends up having a large deficit in Colorado, there's there's just not going to be enough people that will split that ticket. Well, you know, speaking of the debates, the very first one hosted by the Pueblo Chieftain, only 5,000 people were watching that at any given time. Now, more people went back since and watched that and more people saw these debates on TV. It is, as you said, Bent, a really small number of folks but maybe it's those dedicated hardcore voters who are still making up their minds and who actually may split their vote. Maybe these debates could change something. Who knows? You see, I, I think it's not going to be the hardcore voters. I think it's going to be the sort of the low information voters who are finally tuning in and saying, you know what, I like what Gardner's done on this. Or I remember Hickenlooper being good on that. Mm. That might might be doing it. But we're going to all find out after Election Day <laughs> who those voters really are, right? Yes, we'll find out well enough. Oh, yeah. So what do you guys think about Hickenlooper's performance? Did he make his argument in his case? I think in some ways the bar was a little bit lower for Hickenlooper. He's branded himself as not a typical politician. And I haven't talked to anyone who who doesn't think that Gardner is a better debater than Hickenlooper. Mm. Uh, That came across. But I didn't see Hickenlooper make any obvious huge blunders or mistakes or something that has been like a meme on repeat or, you know, nothing dire happened for Hickenlooper. I think he did a pretty good job of staying level-headed and and making the main points he had to make. The funny thing about Hickenlooper and the bar is he literally took the bar, picked it up, and lowered it for himself because he said throughout the debate, okay, Corey's really good at talking. He says a lot of words. He can respond in the moment to these debates. Hickenlooper set the expectation that he himself is really not a great debater. Um, I think there was one really good example to me of the way that Hickenlooper in some ways just isn't fast enough to keep up with Gardner on a debate stage. Verbally, I mean. And it was that Gardner was trying to criticize Hickenlooper, saying that Hickenlooper also wanted to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. This is part of Gardner's overall strategy of sometimes getting to the left of Hickenlooper and criticizing him from like a left point of view, which is really mm-hmm. interesting. Anyway, he was saying that Hickenlooper had joined with Republican John Kasich to introduce a health plan that would replace the ACA and, and cast Hickenlooper again as not a friend to the ACA. And there was a clear response to this, which is just that Hickenlooper and Kasich were trying to improve the ACA. But Hickenlooper essentially conceded the point. So did you or did you not introduce a plan with John Kasich? That's, that's the simple question. By just rolling his eyes dramatically at Gardner. Okay, time. We'll, we'll, we'll go to the next question. Um, trying to get across the point that like you're saying nonsense, but not verbalizing it. And I think there were some times where Hickenlooper could have had a stronger response on the ethics violation. He, you know, he said, yes, I paid the fine. It was inadvertent. But in one of the debates, he, I thought he came across a little dismissive. Well, we're really, in fact, uh, two minor reporting errors. Uh, they were inadvertent. Uh, the Denver Post referred to them as an honest mistake, uh, relatively minor. I paid the 2800 bucks. I took responsibility. And I've talked to voters, Democratic voters, who have been very concerned about that ethics violation. Some of them, they're still backing Hickenlooper. It doesn't take away from the other things they think he's done well. But voters were really paying attention to that. Well, that has been like the main ad. Like every time I turn on a TV or my, I watch YouTube on in Colorado, it's Hickenlooper ethics violation, some ad along those lines. Hickenlooper took illegal gifts, traveled by corporate jet, 
toured Europe illegally in a Maserati. I will say the other area where I thought Hickenlooper should have had a better answer, probably been a little bit more prepared, was the court packing question on the Supreme Court. You know, I think by the by the last, I thought he was pretty good on that. I think by the last last debate, he had a much better answer on what it. What did he say? Basically, you know, if you elect me, then this won't be an issue because what we really need are new people there who won't change the um, the precedents. Uh, make sure you get, you know, new senators in place, new people. Uh, and I think that will change the institution more than immediately changing the rules. Hmm. But, they, yeah. but that's not a very clear. Biden himself hasn't given a clear answer on that because they don't want to. Right. Exactly. And but but I think when you know that there's going to be a topic that that's that sort of foremost on people's minds right now, or at least on sort of our minds, and that they're going to get asked this. And even Gardner tried to ask this of, you know, Gardner tried to wear the moderator hat a couple of times uh-huh. in these debates and tried to ask, tried to pin down Hickenlooper on this, on this question. You know, you need to develop an answer that is succinct and that gets you like there and out, right? Like, I will consider everything. I will nothing's off the table. Whatever it is, or or just say no. I don't support it. But you know, given what Republicans have done, I will have to consider it. Whatever the answer would be, but mm. like, I think he needed an answer. See, I thought he did a pretty good job pivoting out of that because we knew he didn't want to answer it, and he didn't answer it. But I, I think he did okay. And I, I don't want to negate that there were many moments during the debates where Gardner also evaded answering questions, and. We knew that would happen. And some of those instances happened when moderators asked Gardner about his support for the president. Well, speaking of the president, if anyone is wondering if Colorado is still purplish when it comes to the presidential race, I think we have an answer based on who the campaigns are sending to Colorado. That's right. Let's rewind to 2016. I saw Hillary Clinton. I saw Donald Trump in person. We had several visits. And actually, Trump was at the National Western Center in Denver just a matter of days before the election, November 5th, the Saturday. And I looked at my article on this. What he said was, we are going to win Colorado. (laughs) And here's the other thing that didn't really turn out to be true. The country is not going to be divided for long. This year, uh, we haven't seen hide nor hair of either of the presidential candidates. True. I mean, I think the pandemic is part of that, but then also Mm -hmm. another larger part is that we're not seen as a presidential swing state. And I remember back in 2012 where I was almost tired of seeing Mitt Romney and President Barack Obama. You know, they came here. (laughs) One time Romney had an evening rally at Red Rocks and the next morning Obama had a rally in Denver at a park. So that is not the case this cycle. Um, We have had some visits for sure. We had President Trump's a victory bus. And that was in Windsor. It was the night he accepted the Republican nomination yeah. for president. And then mm-hmm. the bus made a few stops along the front range, ended in Pueblo. But now is that the victory bus or just a victory bus? There were a couple going <laughs> so across the country. we didn't even get the only one. And um, Mike Pence's nephew, John Pence, was one of the main speakers and some other top campaign mm-hmm. advisors. And then a few days ago, I was at an event with Kamala Harris's husband, Doug Emhoff, and he talked to three people who were voting for the first time. Sorry, three people in total? Yes. So it wasn't like this big event and not many members of the media were there. Yeah. Well, so I went to a bigger event than the one that you went to. It was a Biden-Harris drive-in rally in Denver. Mm. There were about 60 cars and one antique fire truck Mm. um, in the parking lot of a high school, uh, Denver East High School, about a block away from the city, one of the city's largest parks here. Uh And it was definitely different. I mean, people were socially distanced in their cars, so you didn't really hear like applause or laughter or any of that. 
And they were listening to a whole host of Democratic speakers who were, you know, trying to get everyone excited about going out to vote. Mm -hmm. So instead of the clapping and the cheers that you would normally hear at a rally, listen to Denver area Representative Diana DeGette as she tried to sort of rev up the crowd. Now, can you flash your lights and honk your horn? Woo! Okay. At the same time? (laughs) Scratch your head and rub your belly. (laughs) So, but that was it. It was a lot of horn honking and and flashing of Mm. lights. And I mean, it sounds quiet right there. That was the stage mic. This is what it sounds like where I was standing. My ears were hurting by the end of the event. I had a little bit of a headache. Um, So it was loud. But I'm not sure events like this are really kind of resonating as as fun and as kitschy as they kind of are. Andy, what are you hearing from voters about events like this? Are are they on their minds? Is it what well, are they telling you about the race? I don't think that anybody is really attending these events. I mean, like how many cars can you fit in a parking lot to honk? It's more <laughs> to create the display of doing an event. It's yeah. not so mm-hmm. much about the traditional thing of fitting tens of thousands of people in an arena and getting them revved up. I mean, right. There was a person, I still remember it because I ended up being a great story. I mentioned this Romney-Obama rallies. I, I talked to a voter who was undecided who went to the Romney rally. The next day went to the Obama rally. And we were lucky because we were a state that had these candidates coming, mm-hmm. but that helped him make his mind up. And then I interviewed him after the fact. But those, you're right, those events were actually thousands of people and, uh, you know, a, a sense of community and hearing from the candidate. And, yeah. you know, we, we're not seeing that this cycle. Part of it, like you said, is the pandemic. The other part is, again, just not much of a swing state at this point. We're getting the relatives of the vice presidential candidates. And I'm curious, though, Andy, you know, now that ballots are pouring in, you know, are there undecided voters out there? You've been talking yes. to them this week. The the rare the rare thing known as the undecided voter does still exist. I stopped by the high bid auto shop on Sheridan Boulevard in unincorporated Jeffco. And I actually stopped in because they had a, an enormous billboard about one of the uh, ballot measures hmm. right on top of them. And I wanted to see what they thought of it. But I ran into Joe Pineda and it's his family business. And the way he put it was he was a Trump voter in 2016. He gave me uh, the line you hear quite often about kind of liking what he, not always liking what he says, but liking Mm -hmm. what he does. Yep. But he seemed thoroughly undecided. He actually surprisingly likes both candidates. And it seems like he's going down to the wire. I'm sure a lot of people feel this way. And I asked him what it it was going to take him to actually make up his mind. Oh, my God. I got to go in there. I got to go somewhere in a dark room and just scream is what I got to do. And then hopefully when I'm coming out, I got a decision to make that you know that the best man win. You know what I mean? I think I sit on the sidelines with many Americans. A lot of people are sitting there like in awe right now. Really. I, I'm curious if he's not sold on the president and voting for the president again. Why not? He didn't point out anything he particularly disliked about Trump. You know, he didn't home in on the coronavirus or anything. Um, he said that his big thing was wanting to see what you've done and what you've accomplished and. It seemed like he actually had positive feelings about both candidates. That is a very unique voter. Right? Yes, that is. I like the the idea of a primal scream and then deciding, having that flash of recognition. This is who I'm going to vote for. <laughs> you know, I think what part of it was like he mentions uh, feeling like he's on the sidelines, and it's that this is a voter who's gone both ways in the past and now sees the level of vitriol between parties and doesn't really know what to believe. I think. I think I've seen fewer voters who were undecided on the presidential race, but I've talked to many more who were undecided on the Senate race and maybe, you know, 
farther down the ballot. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with Benta. The, the Coloradans I've been talking to, presidential, they know it's it's down ballot. There, there's still wiggle room, I think, and and a place where candidates can still make their case. That's definitely the biggest question here in Colorado is what happens after the top of the ballot. And even though a lot of people are already voting around the country and in Colorado, things change so rapidly and we don't know what's going to happen in the next week or two that could change the trajectory of any of these races. So speaking of people already starting to vote, um, you know, ballots have gone out. They're starting to get returned as of October 14th. About 300,000 ballots have been returned in the state. Um, about 46 percent are registered Democrats. Thirty three percent are unaffiliated and 19 percent Republicans, registered mm. Republicans. What do you guys think of those numbers? Well, that is uh, a very early number. So it, it's going to be hard to draw too many conclusions. But that would seem to show a lot of Democratic votes coming in early. And the question is why? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of enthusiasm on the Democratic side from certain people. Just they cannot wait to vote (laughs) in this election and vote against the president. Um, This is a pretty high rate of return already for for this early in the voting process. Mm -hmm. I've talked to some Republicans who were planning to vote by mail, but maybe some people are waiting till later to drop them off. And keep in mind, we've got such a long ballot with so many initiatives. That also takes time. So I guess I don't want to draw too many conclusions other than we can say we're seeing some Democratic enthusiasm. Yeah, it's an interesting reversal of the usual trend, which is that we see Republicans in general vote in high numbers early in the race and Democrats catch up a little bit later. So as to why Democrats might be coming in so strongly early, again, could be enthusiasm, but we should keep in mind it could be maybe it's just there's more ballot boxes uh, for dropping ballots off, or maybe Republicans are feeling more distrustful of the mail. Yeah, well, and I, but I, I think this is this goes to sort of that last point is Republicans, at least when the top of your ticket has been making all these claims against voting by mail, are we starting to see some of that? And I know... You know, while Trump has made these claims, other Republicans have said, we want our voters to vote by mail as well. We yeah. want them to return these ballots. And I'm wondering if if maybe that is part of why the numbers are so low for Republicans right now. It'd be it's, interesting. It's I mean, a really good question. But we know that Republican, many Republicans here have strong faith, especially in the ballot drop box system. So I don't know. We'll have to see how other states behave and we'll have to see what happens here in Colorado over the next few weeks. True. I mean, maybe people's actions are different than what they're saying because locally (laughs) people are saying that they they do feel comfortable with our voting system. Mm. The county clerks haven't done this before, but they even put out an informational video to try to dispel some of the misinformation out there. Well, as long as we're speculating, maybe Republicans are still undecided about those bottom of the ballot races or have more questions about, you know, point being. There's a lot of factors. I wouldn't read too much into this yet. That's an excerpt of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News with Binta Berkland, Andrew Kinney, and Caitlin Kim. You can download Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News.